You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your life is going to change. Jobs, kids, houses. Are you financially ready to enjoy the ride? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor today because you've got a lot to look forward to, but you want to be prepared. Hey everyone, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to a special edition of Her Money. If you have recently Googled the question, is my money safe? You are not alone. Searches for that question have spiked sky high since the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and the seizure of Signature Bank over the past few days. Thankfully, and let me just put this question to rest, the answer is a pretty easy one, yes, as long as you have less than $250,000 as an individual or $500,000 jointly in cash or CDs at a single institution. That's the amount insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC. Based on the moves the government recently made, you may even be insured if you have well over the FDIC limits with those particular banks. But let's just rewind and talk about what's been going on this week in the banking system and what brought this about. So during and after the pandemic, venture capital and tech companies raised a huge amount of money to invest in and run very young companies. And a lot of that money ended up at Silicon Valley Bank. The bank grew rapid fire over the last few years. But ironically, in an effort to be conservative, it took the deposits that it received and it bought what we think of as traditionally secure U.S. treasuries and government mortgage-backed securities. The problem was, as interest rates rose. And and that happened because the Federal Reserve was purposefully raising rates to bring the economy in for a soft landing. Several things started to happen. And those things led to Silicon Valley Bank's eventual failure. One of them was that venture-backed companies needed some of their money. They started to spend down some of that money that they deposited at Silicon Valley Bank. A bigger problem was that some of this money, a lot of the money that Silicon Valley Bank had invested in these treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, was not available. They had locked up short-term deposits in long-term investments. And depositors realizing this was an issue started to worry. They started to think that the bank might be headed for trouble. And so some of them went to the bank and started to pull their money out. And then more of them went to the bank and started to pull their money out. The bank tried to remedy things. They tried to sell stock in order to shore up their balance sheet. But by then, we had a classic bank panic underway and things very quickly unraveled from there. And the failure of Silicon Valley Bank was then followed by the collapse of Signature Bank. 
On Monday, we saw stocks of other regional banks down huge. They snapped back a bit Tuesday. Yesterday, on fears of Credit Suisse being in trouble, they were down big again. This is a situation that is playing out in real time. And so today, we're going to take a look behind the curtain. Look, we are all, in one way or another, bank customers. We use our ATM cards. We deposit our paychecks. Some of us, I know I do, use banks to build up a stash of money that we are putting aside for a down payment on a home or our emergency fund. We just stash cash, particularly these days with interest rates up, in our high-yield savings accounts, which is why it's so important to understand what happened here because those are lessons for all of us. Peter Polson, who is the founder and CEO of Tiller Money, which is a company that helps people gain control of their financial lives by enabling them to follow the flows of their money, was one of their customers. He joins us now after reaching out to me and saying, hey, Jean, if you want to talk about this, I'm your guy. Peter, nice to have you here. And thank you for reaching out. Thanks, Jean. It's great to be back. You wrote a post for LinkedIn that started, Tiller was briefly caught by the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank on Friday. In a matter of hours, we went from a financially strong, healthy position to having a balance of zero available funds. Nothing. I mean, that is just petrifying. Right, I look at my bank balance every single day. I know about what's supposed to be in there. Having a balance of nothing. Rewind the clock for me and tell me what happened to you, how you learned about this, and how you reacted. Sure. Well, on Thursday, noticing the news and just seeing that Silicon Valley's bank had plummeted, I did send a note to our chief financial officer, and I said, my gosh, look, Silicon Valley Bank is under a lot of pressure and seems to have surprised investors in the shares of Silicon Valley Bank. But we both concluded that at that time they were still worth $16 billion. And we both concluded this is something for them to manage. But we actually specifically used the word solvency. It seemed inconceivable that this would create a solvency issue for them. So Thursday, wrapped up, went to bed, woke up Friday morning, and the world had changed. And it was clear that there was a bank run going on and that many of the depositors in Silicon Valley Bank had lost confidence. How did you know that that was happening? I saw it in the news. So I saw news articles from especially some of the industry bloggers and news sources that I follow said that there were withdrawals from Silicon Valley Bank, record withdrawals. And at that point, the news said that things were still operating insolvent, but it was clear that there was a significant erosion of confidence. At that point, did you talk to your CFO and say, we got to get our money? <laughs> that was exactly right. To me, then the dots connected. There is a bank run in progress. And so we actually, over the course of Tiller, we've had multiple bank accounts. We've had accounts with Wells Fargo and a number of smaller business-focused banks. We've actually consolidated. We had a single account with Silicon Valley Bank. And we did that for a number of reasons that I can go into, but it became clear we need to create some redundancy here. And so 
I tried to make a wire transfer. The only other account that was in Tiller's name at that time was a was an account that's used to help with employee debit cards for spending. But so not an account meant to have seven figure sums in it, but lo and behold, it was an FDI insured account. And so I did attempt to initiate a wire transfer, realizing both that I was at that time participating in the bank run, like fueling the bank run by pulling my money out, but acting as a rational decision maker, realizing that we can't operate without, like this is our checking account, it's all of our cash, and we need to have some protection here. And so I initiated a wire transfer. It took quite a while because the website was very slow and I had to restart it several times and attempted to initiate. Later that day, I found out that the wire transfer actually did not go through, had been canceled. Had been canceled by the bank. That's right. What had happened already at that time that I didn't know is the regulators had already cut off all the transfers. What became news a few hours later is that the regulators had shut the bank down, but some hours earlier, quietly, they had shut off all the wire transfers. So at that time, there was no money moving anyway. You said seven figures and that you had consolidated your accounts into one bank. As I said at the top of the show, we know these FDIC insurance deposit limits. It's so funny. I live in a condo and have friends who are on the condo board where they keep tabs on the funds of the condo, which are more than $250,000. And so they have struggled to find enough banks to hold this cash, essentially, because they need a new account every time they amass $250,000. Why did you decide to consolidate? And were you worried about these FDIC deposit limits? That's a great question. I was not worried, clearly. (laughs) And In our business, we are constantly managing, mitigating risks. We're mitigating risks of bad actors. We're mitigating risks of system failures. We're mitigating risks to protect our customers' data. We're mitigating risks to protect our financial accounts, right? And one of the very common ways that we read about every day in the paper that people lose money, the most common way is through fraud, through hacks. There's a couple of reasons why we consolidated. One was when you have all your funds in a bank, the your relationship with that bank, a lot of banks require it to have a deeper relationship where they can provide credit facilities, where they can provide other tools and solutions and become really a working partner. The second thing is that we had that bank locked up and it was locked up from a safe and secure perspective in terms of understanding if there's any money moving in and out, making sure that we had user permissions for the different people who would access it and only certain uh, users could move money. We had, of course, multi-factor authentication. And so managing that for a portfolio of banks gets complicated and to me feels also like it has its challenges in terms of distraction for a business that wants to be focused on our customers and also for creating risk. So in my mind, the calculus, which was wrong, right? I own this. I made a decision. But in my mind, the math was simple. Our deposits are not at risk by putting them in one bank. This is an unprecedented event in our lifetime. Well, let me own it as well. I mean, her money has a bank account. It has more in it than $250,000. And it is at a bank. It was fortunately not at this bank, but it is at a bank. And we have, like many businesses, like your business, set up a series of safeguards so that we understand who and how money is moving. But it makes me wonder for 
individuals, but also for businesses, what's the playbook for the future? I think, and I will say that certainly many banks have failed in my lifetime. And I was in Seattle when Washington Mutual failed. That was the largest bank failure in the United States. It was a devastating blow to the Northwest economy at the time. And it sent shockwaves through the city. There were jobs lost. They were a major philanthropic giver. But no one at any time during that crisis worried about their deposit accounts. Many, many, if you went up and down their street, many people had accounts. And so what was unique here is that the deposit accounts were in question. And they were in question Friday. They were in question Saturday. They were in question until late Sunday when the federal government finally made the decision. And so I think through that, we both know in this situation with this administration under these circumstances, they chose to guarantee above the 250,000. But given that that took three days, it is conceivable that a different situation, different administration, different actors could have made different decisions because it certainly was not an instant decision. And so I do think that having multiple accounts is a good baseline it still feels impractical for large accounts, whether that's for companies or individuals, to create an account for every 250 or for couples for 500,000. But I do think some diversity does provide some protection. And in this case, you know, if it had played out, let's say both the federal government had decided not to intervene, but let's also say that that didn't start a follow-on bank run, then you know, it's likely that most of that money would have made its way back in the coming weeks or months. How would that have happened? The money, as you point out in your summary at the beginning of this, was really on spot. The money was there. It was in longer duration investments. So if the money was in a five-year or a 10-year or even a one-year investment, even a government-backed security, and depositors want their money out today, then the only way to get that money is to sell that one-year or five-year security on the secondary market. If they had held it, they would have known that they would have gotten a guaranteed return from the U.S. government. But if they sold it now, interest rates have moved and it's just worth less. And so it would have resulted in some losses. And but eventually they would have freed up most of the cash. Granted, not all of it, but most of it. So a couple of follow ups. Yes. First of all, what was the weekend like for you? I mean, before the government stepped in and decided we're going to backstop Silicon Valley Bank, we're going to backstop Signature Bank, which they seized. Right. What were those three days like? I mean, did you think right. uh, we're done? <laughs> you know, and this is where I think, so I clearly made a decision that in hindsight, I would have not made, I would have made differently, which was having all of our money in one account. But there are many things that we have done at Tiller that have put us in a strong footing. And one of the first things I did Friday, as that became clear, I met with our CFO, we reviewed our financial model and our projections. We have investor funds that we are planning to invest this year in growth. And we looked at that forecast and we changed in our forecast, the available cash balance down to zero. And then we changed it to 250,000 with the cash that we expected would be back from the FDIC insurance. And we, we played with that model. And we quickly came to a conclusion that we would survive, we'd make payroll, we could continue with our full team. We would cut back on new investments this year, but we could manage into profitability with the resources we had. It's a different business plan than the aggressive growth plan that we had set at the beginning of the year, but we could. I am so grateful for the work our CFO did on that plan. And it's just a reminder personally for all of us, right? When we have a plan, and I think of a plan as at least two components. One is an emergency fund. In this case, obviously that went from zero or to 250, that sort of 250 is something. 
for us. And then having a plan, which, you know, in the personal sense is a budget, you can quickly sit down and you can look and you can say, okay, where can we make immediate changes? Because these shocks happen. That's not going to happen the same way next time, but these shocks happen in our personal lives. They happen in our, with our businesses. I want to ask you about banks in general. Because Tiller Money, so for people who are not familiar with Tiller Money, Tiller is an instrument that helps people aggregate their data into really nifty spreadsheets that helps you take a look at where your money is going, right? I'm a subscriber of Tiller Money. And so every day I get a little snapshot in my email that says, this is what you did yesterday. This is where you transacted. These are the bills you paid. This is what happens. And then if I want to take a longer view, I can do that. But it's linked to my accounts. People are banking in very, very different ways today than we did 10 years ago, right? There's been a rise through the expansion of all of these fintechs of neobanks, which are sort of not really banks, but they act like banks and they borrow another bank's charter. There are a lot of different financial services that people are using. And the headlines here, and you know, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were not small banks, right? These are not small little banks. They ranked in the top 25, right, in the country, both of them. But it makes me wonder about the decision to use these smaller, unproven financial service institutions. Where do you fall on that? And because you, as a business, help people track the flow of funds, you sort of have a ringside seat to see this evolution. Are you worried? I think that what's going to play out as the dust settles is that I think there will be some more clarity provided through the regulatory environment, possibly through raised FDIC limits around what is guaranteed and will provide more certainty around this. So I do think that there are enough people that are spun up and it's enough of a crisis of confidence that I hope, but I also believe that there will be some clearer regulations and guidelines provided. In the short term, I think most consumers aren't prepared to evaluate the creditworthiness of the institutions they bank with. I think, generally speaking, you can use the rough approximations and just sort of make some credibility judgments yourself. But the reality is most people aren't in a position to do any refined credit analysis and to know exactly how risky or not things are behind the scenes, behind that website. And I think the simplest thing I would say is diversity. Having at least redundancy with two institutions absolutely makes sense. And I also think, though, that it's to me that my outlook that there'll be some clarity provided here, either with higher limits or clear insight for consumers. I think it's just a reminder to me that in my LinkedIn post, I turned this as a black swan. It was a black swan for me, which was it was a risk that I certainly understood theoretically, but I had rated the probability of that to be close to zero. Now, some people would have perceived it as a higher risk, and for them, it was not a black swan. For me, it was a black swan. I think that the, the biggest takeaway lesson here is not overthinking this specific situation as much other than having redundancy with your banks, but thinking about your whole financial systems and how resilient are you? How resilient are you if your paycheck doesn't arrive? How resilient are you if a bank shuts down? How resilient are you if you are sick or incapacitated and 
Is there someone else in your life that can get into those accounts and pay your rent or your mortgage? Or finally, like how resilient are you if the phone that has all your credentials goes missing and like, what's your way to get back into your important accounts? And so I think thinking about resilience, and I would say that having resilience in many ways, although not with bank accounts, was what made the weekend bearable and allowed us to know as a team that we had a path forward. But I think that's a huge lesson for all of us, which is that black swan events do happen. They won't look the same way. It's worth spending some time to think about what if this same thing happened. But much more important is to sort of look systematically at our at our financial picture and think like, what if the unexpected happens? How am I prepared? How are we prepared to weather it? That is such good advice. And it's really applicable. It's not just businesses, right? It is applicable to each listener, right? If you're listening, these questions that Peter is asking, what happens if something happens to your phone and you can't use, you know, the face match tool to get yourself logged into your bank account? Do you actually know those passwords? Do you have them someplace? Do you have them in a password manager? What happens if you're sick or ill? Is somebody able to step in and handle paying your bills for you so that you're not late? It's all of these what-if scenarios because we do know that emergencies happen. I get a lot of newsletters, Peter. One of the newsletters that I get every day is called 21 Hats, which I recommend, by the way. It's a newsletter for entrepreneurs and small businesses. And they picked up a story today about smaller banks and the value of having customer relationships. I am a huge fan of credit unions and the credit union industry. I'm a credit union customer as well as a bank customer. And I do think, and you alluded to this before, your banking relationship for many of us who own businesses, but also who don't, who just want to have an institution where we're known, where if we want to get a car loan, if we want to get a mortgage, if we want to get a personal loan, if we want to talk to somebody about what are the best rates on CDs, we have an ability to actually have a conversation. That's something that you often get from a smaller bank or a credit union where you're not a number. What do you think the value in a banking relationship is? I think that's spot on. And it's actually what drove so many companies to Silicon Valley Bank, so many companies like ours, because they understand our business. They understand the the kinds of products we need and whatnot. And I think that there will be other banks that cater to the needs of software companies like Tiller. And I think personally, I think having banks that know us, having banks that can recommend products. I also am a big fan of credit unions because inherently they have service built into their model in a way that a lot of other institutions do not. And I think that that relationship can be really important. It's really a personal choice. Some people, they really just want the easiest to use app and that's it. And that's fine. And again, having more than one choice is the name of the game, especially coming out of last weekend. But I'm a big fan of the local relationship. There are many situations that I have had where I had a check in a personal account that bounced because of money moving one day and it hit just at the wrong time. And being able to call the banker and like talk it through with them and have them help take care of it, you only get that at a small, at a bank where they're going to know you. I mean, I'm flashing when you're talking about this. And look, I have accounts with banks and credit unions, but I'm flashing on a, I lived 
for many, many years in a very small town where I knew the bank tellers by name. And I left my ATM card in the machine. And rather than shred it as they were supposed to, they picked up the phone and they called me and said, come get your card, right? I mean, that's the kind of thing that happens when you're a person. And I think it can happen in a branch of a big bank. It often happens, though, at these smaller institutions. Peter, last words on this as we head out into the great unknown. I mean, things are still, as I mentioned, we're recording this on Wednesday morning. Things are still swirling. There's a lot of uncertainty in the air. What are your recommended moves for individuals who are just thinking, all right, I do want to be resilient. I don't want to be at the mercy of a system controlling my money. That's a really good question. If there's one more kick in the pants to get your stuff together. This is it, right? And you know that's why people come to Tiller. That's why people listen to your podcast. That's why people listen to your show and your recordings and your advice is to get your stuff together. But sometimes we need that extra kick and this is that, right? So we were able to come up with a plan B because we had a plan and a budget and a forecast in place. The same is true individually. We were also able to navigate this as a team because we have a culture of talking about money. And I was able on Friday to update the team and update our investors, and they all really appreciated it. We were all together as one. And if you have other people in your that you share finances with, having that culture of communication and transparency and collaboration will be inevitably helpful when things get rough. And then build in redundancy wherever you can. And I think that is what helped us through the weekend. And when I went on long walks with my wife and when I got texts back and forth with our team and investors, that's having those in place made me realize we will get through this. And that is really what we're all commanded to do is have a plan in place, make sure we're communicating if there's someone that we share our finances with, build in redundancy, and we'll all be better prepared for whatever that unexpected thing happens around the next corner. Peter Polson from Tiller, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for your candor. I appreciate the look behind the curtain. Thank you, Jean. It's great to chat. We are able to do bonus shows like this one thanks to the support of our fantastic sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. Let me talk to you about EFE. Life comes at you very quickly. There could be wedding bells on the horizon, a promotion around the corner, a grandchild on the way. Are you financially prepared for everything that life has in store? With a well-crafted plan, you can be ready. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor. You'll work with an expert to review your current situation to develop a long-term strategy to help you embrace life's biggest moments. Schedule your free appointment today. Her Money is also supported by BCU, one of the nation's fastest growing credit unions. As I said, I am a credit union fan, and this is why BCU helps members make smart financial decisions by offering the products, services, and caring support they need for whatever stage of life they're in. 
Find out if you're eligible to join BCU by visiting bcu.org. Thanks so much for tuning in today on Her Money. Thanks to Peter Polson for breaking things down for us and for the great advice. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk soon.